Thanks a lot, you guys. It's already been a great morning, hasn't it? We saw Ellen and Janie trying to yodel, if you were here earlier. And I think Ben and I have got Ellen and Janie beat, though, right? High schoolers, did you see that yodel video last week? Was it all right? All right. I said to Ben, just don't really embarrass me, okay? I know I'll be embarrassed. Just don't do too bad a job with it. So we're really grateful uh, for this time that we get to spend all of us together here and for the band that was here and saw Doug actually representing the old guys with gray hair, Doug. <laughs> That's good. I'm just kind of the handoff to the other old guy with gray hair here. But uh, Doug is awesome and a great mentor to that young team, and it's fun to see what God's doing with that too. And then for us to enjoy a celebration of new life in Christ with uh, Mashi uh, giving her life to Christ and being able to be baptized this morning. Tali and Math, she were in my office earlier this week and I got to hear more of the details around that story. It's just really extraordinary, the thing that God does when people sense God's grace rather than a hard hand, but actually a hand of love and concern for them. And Tali said to me as they were leaving my office, she says, Mark, she says, I, ne- I have another child, a spiritual child. And I said to Tali, yes, and we will celebrate that, but I can't wait to see grandchildren. Uh, it's true, isn't it? This is what we're made for, actually. Not only to have spiritual kids, but to have kids who have kids. Cannot wait for the day. Mashi is there baptizing someone that she's been able to introduce to the grace grace and forgiveness of Jesus. That's why we're here, right, this morning? Would you pray with me as we begin our time in God's Word? God, thank you for the privilege of being able to celebrate so many things that are happening here, and we look forward to what's coming even at the conclusion of this service. We pray that you would use your Word in such a way that it would enrich our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So how many of you have seen the Chewbacca Mom video? No kidding, six days ago, I think this thing went viral, and it has had like 4.8 million hits already, and if you're having a hard time smiling or laughing, you just log on. So I don't know if 5 million people have logged on to it, or if a million people have logged on to it five times, (laughs) but there is that sense, isn't it, man, I just need to laugh like that. There's something magnetic there's a magnetism around people that are laughing and a joy that's found. In fact, when you find a person who laughs, uh, there's just kind of, can I be around you, please? I, I just want that. I want that in my life. And that sense of joy and gladness is infectious. Uh, we're drawn to people who are happy. Did you hear that? We're actually drawn to people filled with happiness. For those of you that are introverts out here, you might say, thanks for the warning, Mark. I'm going to just put a frown on my face. But even for those of you that are introverts, you say, you know what? I just want to be in relationship with people. Well, this is the way God does it, actually. He actually invented happiness. He invented gladness and rejoicing. He is the inventor of it. It just didn't happen accidentally. He made us to feel fulfillment in that gladness and that joy that is a part of our life. In fact, Last week, we looked at some of the statistics in Scripture, and we noticed that over 300 times in the Bible, there is reference to obedience and, and, and observing. 
But 50% more than that, there's reference to joy and gladness. You get it? There's something God wants to say about our life, actually to live obediently and observant of who he is and what he has to say to us so that we can actually get to the happiness and gladness. The one who invented happiness and joy wants it to be true for us. In fact, over and over again in the Bible, you see these words for happiness and joy. And it's, I, I think we feel more comfortable if we can kind of discreetly separate them from each other and say, well, this is happiness and this is joy. But when you dig into those words that are used in the Greek and in the Hebrew and the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll discover that they just kind of blend together. No kidding. Look deeply and our initial notions of this is what happiness is and this is what joy is, they actually aren't as nearly as discreet as people would say they were. They just kind of mush together. In fact, over and over again, you say, it says, rejoice and be glad all the way through the Bible. Rejoice and be glad. You see how both of those things are actually brought together. That rejoicing and gladness, rejoicing and happiness, actually are cousins or they're related to each other. And this is what he has for us. But there's one other thing you will notice about this, and this is where I want to get this morning. You'll notice that the scripture says, rejoice and be glad. Sounds like a command, doesn't it? That's actually what he's telling us to do. There's an imperative to that. He's saying to every single one of you, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. This is what God wants from your life. And you realize, wow, it sounds like he's telling me it's something I better practice. It actually is. How's that for an assignment? Has any teacher ever in high school said to you, your assignment for this weekend is to be happy? But this is what God says to us. Your assignment for your life is to be characterized by gladness and rejoicing. It's actually what he assigns. In fact, if we go back historically to many of the ancient Christian practices, they're called in some, in some contexts spiritual disciplines or, or spiritual practices, actually. We go back at the history of the church, and I'm talking centuries and centuries and centuries before us. There were those leaders in the Christian church that said, here are things that you better practice. And they're the obvious ones that we heard about when we were kids, at least I did. I better practice praying. I better practice reading the Bible. I better practice and fasting came along. You see, there's another one here, and it's to practice gladness. In fact, it was called the discipline of celebration. I didn't even discover the discipline of celebration until I was in post-grad work. And Dallas Willard was teaching a class that I was sitting in on, and I realized, wow, I've never actually known that God calls me to practice that. And I was in a place in my life that was just a funk. It was, it was just a lot of sadness and, and grief and, and unhappiness and sorrow and just questioning God over some stuff. And Dallas Willard said to those of us that were in this class, he said, there's a discipline of celebration. It's what God intends for you. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. How can we actually practice celebration? How can we actually practice gladness? And you say, good luck, Mark. It's going to be tough for me because you don't know the situation that I'm in my life. And I would just point back to Paul's words, who, who was in all kinds of terrible situations. He was shipwrecked, he was stoned, he was beaten. You know that if you've read the uh, book of Corinthians, you actually see, wow, what a horrible life he had. And yet there he is saying in Philippians, I have learned, I have learned the secret of contentment 
in plenty and in want. He has this capacity to experience a sense of gladness and joy in his life. So it's possible for any single one of us in any circumstance. In fact, here's what I want to do this morning. I want to take three different sections of Scripture, and we will see together people that are characterized by gladness and sadness in the same place, in the same circumstance. All right? We're going to look at three different places in Scripture, and we're going to see people filled with gladness and people filled with grief and and, and hopelessness and despair, and they're living in the same place. The first place we'll turn to is what we find actually in um, Numbers chapter 13. And we know this story of God's people were in Egypt and they were really struggling with the, the, the weight that was put on their shoulders. And God finally sent Moses and took them along and they all left Egypt. And we've seen, you know, the, the, we, we've seen the movie about it, at least, if we haven't read it in Scripture, right? And, and there they go, walking through the uh, uh, seas parted and they walk through the wilderness and they get to the place that God promised them, a place he said would be filled with milk and honey. Now, that might not sound necessarily appetizing to you, but it was just this picture of a place of joy and rejoicing. He said, I will get you to that place. And they're getting close to that place. And in Numbers chapter 13, they decide that they're going to send some people in to be able to look in the land and see what's there. And so they send 12 people in, and they come back with two realities. One is, a several, a couple of them, are carrying on a stick between them this cluster of grapes that is so massive they need a stick to carry between them. And pomegranates and figs besides that. Now, if you don't understand, they were bringing with them a party on a stick. (laughs) That's what this was, and it was a big deal. And they're saying, God was right. He, He has a place prepared for us that is filled with, essentially, gladness and joy. Everything you need. And they said, let's go into that land. But there was another part of the story. And it was this, oh, 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 oh. There are some really, really big people that we saw there. They're terrifying to us. In fact, we must look like grasshoppers to them because we look like grasshoppers to us. And they're filled, some of them, are filled with so much fear that that whole generation of people to whom God had promised them a land to live, and the party on the stick was accompanying them so they could see it, to that people, they actually turned around and they went back into the wilderness and they didn't experience what God intended for them. Now, there's another group of people. A generation later, they come along and guess what? They actually enjoy the very thing that those group of people were too timid to embrace. You see, two groups of people having two completely different experiences because of what they saw and what they didn't see. And this brings us to the first discipline that we need to be aware of. We need to practice seeing the whole picture and finding God in it. Some of them saw giants, and God wanted them to also see grapes. Huge, huge people. Yeah, but there's this huge huge provision and they were unable to see it they were both there to be seen they only saw the thing that terrified them this is what God tells us to do back up look at the hole see the hole and recognize that God is there in the midst of the hole in fact Henry Nouwen actually says in a book called creative ministry he talks about this very idea and he says this about this discipline of celebration 
he says, uh, let me just get it for you here. He says, when we speak about celebrations, we tend rather easily to be, bring to mind happy, pleasant, joyful festivities in which we can forget for a while the hardships of life, the giants in our life, and immerse ourselves in an atmosphere of music, dancing, drinks, laughter, and a lot of cozy small talk. But celebration in the Christian sense has very little to do with any of that. Celebration is only possible through the deep realization that life and death are never found completely separate from one another. Celebration can only really come about where fear and love, joy and sorrow, tears and smiles can exist together. Celebration is the acceptance of life in a constantly increasing awareness of his preciousness. And we say, I will celebrate when I see clean joy and clean gladness. If I see something that intimidates me or scares me, I cannot celebrate yet. In fact, he goes on to be able to say this. He says, he says this in following. It seems that the Christian invitation to celebrate, to accept your life as the only life you have, to live it and accept it as good, has, per, has perhaps become the most difficult challenge we face. You see, it's possible for us to say, you know what, there are giants in the land. And we fail to see, yes, but there's also a God who will provide everything we need. And here's a discipline for us. Practice seeing the broader picture. And realizing that even in this moment, God is present and he has provided. That's where joy comes from. Hard is not hopeless. You don't have to be oblivious to pain or naive about life to be happy. Even in the midst of your life, God says, it's possible if you look deep enough to see there he is. And he is everything I need. This is the day that the Lord has made. The Lord made today. And if that's true, he's here. And if he's here, I just need to back away from the giant so I can see the whole thing. That's the discipline of celebration. Now there's another story we see and it's accompanied by rejoicing and weeping at the same time. And it's in Ezra chapter 3. It's a remarkable story actually. God's people have been brought into exile and then they have this opportunity through Ezra and others to be able to go back to the land of Israel and to rebuild the temple that was there. You remember the temple was built by Solomon, uh, David's son, King Solomon, and he built this massive and beautiful temple. In fact, archaeologists, if you go over to Jerusalem, you can see these temple stones really deep buried into the ground, and they're massive. No kidding, they're about that wide and about that high. They're just these massive stones that you can see 
if you dig deep enough. On top of them, you can see stones that go above it, and they're a lot more smaller, and it doesn't look nearly as profound or remarkable. But, but that was the building that came afterwards. Solomon built these massive stones, and then they came along, and they just built on top of them. And the stones didn't look nearly as remarkable, but, but a temple had been constructed. And that's what we read about in the book of Ezra. People get together and they put this foundation in place and it is really amazing what happens here. In Ezra chapter 3, verses 10, they get together and they decide they want to celebrate the establishment, the reestablishment of the foundation of the temple. Listen to these words. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites with cymbals took their place to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all of the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made such so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Do you see it? There's a party going on, but there's a wake going on at the same time. And the difference between the people that are celebrating and the people that are grieving isn't what's in front of them. It's what they remember about what used to be. You see, there's a comparison going on. I remember it used to be so spectacular, magnificent. And God just wants to shake them by the shoulders and wake them up and say, do you see what's happening today? My people have come back to this land and they have built a temple for me. Is it possible for you to stop your comparisons and rejoice today? in what God is doing. In fact, if we actually page back to Zechariah, we see that rebuke actually laid out by the, by the prophet there. And it says this in Zechariah chapter 4, Do not despise the day of small things or small stones. Don't despise that day. In fact, it goes on to verse 10 and it says this, Guess what? God is rejoicing over this day. You see what happens? When I decide to compare, my ability to be filled with joy just erodes. Is that true for you? You know, I think of what's happened perhaps in the past. You know, this isn't the way it was. You know, it used to be a whole lot better than this. That can kill a celebration. I mean, think of this. I'm so disappointed because last year's soccer team, we had so much more talent than this year. Are you going to live in that? I am so disappointed because I had to move to this new school and the old school, I had a whole lot more friends. Oh, this just stinks. And there was somebody who had a friend who was from California, and she was always talking about how good it was in California. Do you think that really worked very well for them? You know, it came to a point where says, you know, if you like it so much in California, just go back there, okay? I mean, there's just this sense we make these comparisons, and it's not only past tense, present tense, but it's present tense, present tense. Where did you go on vacation? Ugh, I guess ours stunk. 
Your parents are so much cooler than mine are. Your kids are so much easier than mine are. Do you see? It can go on and on and on and on. And do you know what it does to me? Do you know what it does to you? It just erodes any possibility of experiencing the very life that God wants for us. Our vision statement here is to bring every person to life in Christ. That means he wants this life for us. He wants us to experience the fullness of life, the richness of life. And if we don't engage in this second discipline, we won't have a life anybody wants. What is the second discipline? It is this, practice living without comparisons. Practice living without comparisons. The first is practicing the whole picture and notice God there. The second is practice living without comparisons. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. I see them for me. I don't know what God's doing in your life. But today, for me, this day, not yesterday, today, his mercy is for me. And that can fill me with contentment and gladness and rejoicing. Friends, God wants this for you. He wants you to be filled with the reality of what he's doing in your life today. And that brings us to the third place in Scripture where we see actually complaining and rejoicing in song together. And it's the Scripture that's actually on the cover of your Connect this morning from the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk actually could be called the book of complaints. In fact, if you have notes on there, you can see in the NIV, actually it talks about the complaints, the first complaint, the second complaint. You know, and, then the, and then this prayer after it is just filled with a reason to complain and people who were characterized by complaint. But then at the end of it, you see him boldly saying, but I will rejoice. It says this, though the fig tree does not bud, I'm in chapter 3, verse 17, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, and though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And then the last words, for the director of music on my stringed instruments. I'm going to sing this song, he says. And what's the song I'm going to sing? It is this, I will live with gladness today. You'll see that all of those references that Habakkuk refers to here are references of what he hopes might be there in the future. What he hopes might be there in the future. There, the, the fig tree is budding, and I'm hoping it will bear fruit. The grapes are ripening, and I hope I'll be able to make wine. The olives and the wheat, they are there still in the field. There's the sheep, and I hope to be able to harvest some wool from them in the future. And there are the cattle in the stalls, and I hope someday to have a steak dinner. You see, it's all future tense. It's all, I hope it happens in the future. And there are people who will live with hope for what they think will happen in the future, and they won't be able to sing a song of gladness today. Not Habakkuk. He says, I don't have any idea what's ahead of me. And I look out at the fields, actually, and I can't see 
a trajectory in the circumstances around me that lead me to have hope, but I will not live there. I will not complain about what I don't know about yet. Now it talks about this in detail in this discipline of celebration. And let me just read a paragraph or two uh, to you from this. He says this, We live in a culture in which these words of Jesus, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Sounds beautiful and romantic, but completely unrealistic. We live in such a utilitarian society that even our most intimate moments have become subject to the questions, and what's the purpose of it for tomorrow? We get together with people, and we get together to plan the purpose of tomorrow. We have conversations, and we network for tomorrow's purposes along the way. He goes on to say this. In this kind of life, oh no, we always keep on believing that the real thing is going to happen tomorrow. Today stinks. Can't wait for tomorrow. That will be when I can buy that car, get that friend, be merry, whatever it might be. And I live in a world where the real thing is actually going to happen tomorrow. I will feel better tomorrow. I won't be sick tomorrow. I'll be able to solve that problem tomorrow. Do you see? We just so fixate on what's happening on tomorrow, we can't actually enjoy this. He says, in this kind of life, the past is denigrated into a series of misused opportunities, the present into a constant concern about accomplishments, and the future into make-believe paradise, where we hope to finally receive what we always wanted, but the existence of which we basically doubted. So here is a team that we're going to commission, and you're headed on a wonderful adventure, and you're thinking, you're supposed to be thinking about tomorrow. Can't wait. Can't wait to that first week that we actually get to engage with these kids. Can't just wait for, it, for the friendships that I'm going to develop in my relationships here on this team. I just can't wait for it. And God would say to you, wait. Think about today. What does God want you to rejoice and be glad in today? Don't occupy your life with tomorrow's hopes and fears. I don't know whether the figs are going to bear fruit. I don't know whether we will ever make wine. But today, I will rejoice and be glad in God my Savior. He goes on to say it on that. A life like this cannot be celebrated because we're constantly concerned with changing it into something else, always trying to do something to it, get something out of it, and make it fit into our many plans and projects. We go to meetings, conferences. We critically evaluate our part, discuss how to do it better in the future, and worry whether or not our great design will ever work out. Our culture is a working, hurrying, and worrying culture with many opportunities, but very little opportunity to celebrate life. And there is Jesus saying to us, here is the discipline. Practice living with gladness today. Gladness today or the distractions of tomorrow. Pick one. And I'll tell you, we will have to practice gladness today because the distractions of tomorrow are so in our face. Don't let the future destroy the present. 
don't wish your life away. Both excitement about tomorrow and fear about tomorrow can destroy gladness in today. I think it will be great when I retire. It will be great when it will be great. God says, I want you to experience the glory of today where mercies you will see if you take the time to look for them. This is the day the Lord has made. This day. And it's not even noon yet. I, I will rejoice and I will be glad in it. So what's your takeaway? You'll see in your notes here what we have every week, my next step. Let me suggest three possibilities to you. One is, you might say, I've got to stop looking at that giant. What is it? I've got to stop looking at the giant and, 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 and write down what it is. That might be your takeaway. The only thing God wants you to do is, is, is step back and look at the whole. Second possible takeaway might be, I need to stop comparing things. I need to stop comparing my life to someone else's. I need to stop comparing the past to what's true today. I've got to just stop comparing things. And the third might be the possibility of this. I need to live today and find the gladness in it. I need to say over and over again in my head and in my heart, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. So as you think about that, let's worship together. You know what the name of the song is we're singing next? Joy. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this invitation you give us to live that kind of life. And Lord, some of us this morning long to be further along, further up the ladder towards that gladness and joy, that contentment, that lightheartedness than we are today. So Lord, would you please show us how we can get there by your grace and your strength. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.